For the next hour, you'll be leaving the show me state and entering the show me the money state. So stop what you're doing, grab a pen, and get ready to learn. Jake Floyd of Floyd Financial Group will be your guide for straight talk and honest answers about living the life you deserve in retirement. So So prepare prepare to to be be empowered. Now, here are your Show Me The Money hosts, Jake Floyd and Jeff Shade. Good morning and welcome to Show Me The Money with Jake Floyd, the radio show that gives you the straight talk and honest answers you need to help you reach your wealth management and retirement goals through smart investing and careful planning. My name's Jeff Shade and I'm just here, of course, to ask the questions, but the words of wisdom and solid advice you know come from Jake Floyd of Floyd Financial Group. Good morning, Jake. How you feeling today? You know, Jeff, I'm doing great. It just seems to get cooler and cooler and I'm just loving the weather. I'm loving life and it's just good to be here. Yeah, it's good to be here too. And you're right, man. Things are getting a little bit cool. I thought I'd have to wait until October until things got cool, but here we are, you know, last couple of weeks of September. Things are cooling off, a sure sign that fall is on the way, but another sure sign, Jake, is that the Christmas items have begun to show up in the supermarket and the drugstore. You know, Jeff, kind of to that point, have you ever tried to buy a bathing suit in July? It's absolutely (laughs) Absolutely impossible, it's impossible to yeah. do, which is like when you need it, you can't get it because they yeah. already have the pants and sweaters in in July because <laughs> of the upcoming season. So maybe that's my lack of preparedness showing. But you know, if you ever go on vacation or whatever and you need a bathing suit, you know, it better be winter yeah. when you're buying it. Otherwise, you're not going to find one, which I've always found to be interesting. Yeah, I have had that experience more times than one, and it's it's funny you should mention that because I was thinking I need a bathing suit for the summertime. So I'm gonna you know wait about a month or so and. I'm I'm sure I'll find all the bathing suits I want. But nevertheless, whether it's spring, summer, fall, or winter, we're here with you four seasons to talk about your finances, fiscal fitness, and for your financial education every week right here on the radio. So, Jake, let's dive into what's happening now in the market and in the economy and our current events. And it seems that, boy, is there no end to how high we can go with this debt. $33 trillion is what I read the last time. This is the highest amount of debt that we have been in ever. I can't believe that anything good can come from this. Yeah, it seems like a lot of Congress just doesn't seem to care, which is kind of alarming. I think, you know, if you're in Congress and it's your job to spend and collect and, you know, manage the budget overall, you know, you're not doing a very good job. This should be at least concerning to you. And I think there are a handful of Congress people that it is concerning to. However, I do think that the vast majority of them seem to be totally asleep at the wheel. And they're more worried about what's going on with Lauren Boebert in a theater than they are right. their job. And, you know, making sure that our children and grandchildren have a future. And I think that, you know, that's kind of sad. And I really think that a lot of Americans, I think, are getting fed up with this. And they're getting sick of these people spending money. You know, it's kind of like uh, last week with the F-35 that went missing. You know, pilot mm-hmm. punches out. And, you know, they're like, you know, Mr. Farmer, if you see our plane, can you please let us know? It's like, are you kidding me? You have an $80 million plane on a multi-billion dollar project of the F-35 and you don't know where it is? I mean, you know, I drive a BMW. If I lost my BMW, they can pinpoint it within, you know, a couple of feet based what? on GPS. You're telling me an $80 million plane doesn't have that? Put an Apple AirTag on it or something. People put those on their yeah. luggage, though, in case they get lost. But you're right. I mean, these are just some silly things that we see in the media, in the news every day, and we're just helpless to do anything about it. And I'm just wondering, as you said, whether or not people have their eyes open. And, you know, here we are 
possibly facing another government shutdown after September 30th. Yeah, and I think, you know, the government shutdowns, I think, are a symptom of the fact that Congress doesn't care, right? Some of the people are trying to hold them accountable. Some Congress people, the Rand Pauls and some of the what's become known as the Freedom Caucus and these people are saying, you know, what else am I supposed to do? You guys clearly will not stop spending money that we don't have continually asking taxpayers for more money. You know, what are we supposed to do here? I'm not saying the government shutdowns are right. I'm just simply saying, you know, something has to give somewhere. And the only thing that they can actually kind of put a stop in is the debt ceiling. And so because of that, I think that's why it's always heavily fought over on both sides, you know, and and while it is kind of dumb, maybe what's more dumb is that's the only thing that can stop Congress from spending us into oblivion. So maybe we should rethink that system rather than always having this debt ceiling thing coming up and it always being a problem. And something I also read, which was rather disturbing, is that the debt is on track to top $50 trillion by the end of the decade, even after newly passed spending cuts are taken. $50 trillion. I'm not so sure we can stand $30 trillion, but what would happen if the debt went to $50 trillion? So honestly, Jeff, it's really more about the interest rate than it is about the amount of debt. You know, if we have $50 trillion at 0.8% interest. It's not really that huge a deal. However, anything that's getting refinanced right now is refinancing at 4 and 5%, which is in some cases five times what we're paying on it right now. If we go to $50 trillion by the end of the decade and we're financing that money at 4 or 5%, it's not going to be good because our interest payment will be higher than our total revenue. And so we'll actually be stacking up debt just to make the interest payments. And so it seems to me that it's fairly simple math. Maybe we stop spending on stupid crap. And if we're spending $5 trillion a year or close to it, and we're collecting $2 trillion or $2.2 trillion or whatever the number is in that given year, it doesn't take a genius to understand that we're going to be stacking up more debt. Right. And so people talk about balancing the budget. I mean, I think we need to even look at the budget. I don't think anybody's looking at it. You know, they say they're looking at it, but I mean, if you look at some of the things that we spend money on in this country, you know, it's just appalling. It's a slap in the face to the American people, in my opinion. You know, and I think that these people that we elect ought to look out for us the way they promise to. And, you know, if they're not going to, or if they're going to stand at the podium and not be able to speak, or if they're going to fall asleep during Congress, or if they're going to be 96 years old, maybe it's time to set them aside. Maybe we should have a top age limit, you know, an upper age limit like we do for pilots or for police officers, you know, for the same reason. Nothing against people that are older. It's just, you know, we have to have some kind of commitment to competency at some point. Yeah. And, and, you know, when I think about driver's licenses, I think once you get to be in your late 60s or 70s, some states will require that your license is renewed every couple of years instead of every four years. And then when you get older, you have to have a driving test. But you're right. I've often thought in politics, there should be not only a minimum age, but also a maximum age. Because, you know, right now we're seeing what age can do to somebody and it is not good. We're talking with Jake Floyd here of Floyd Financial Group. We're talking about $33 trillion debt. And it seems that civilians, you know, you and I, not necessarily, but there are a lot of people out there, Jake, who are taking a tip from the government and they're continuing to run up their debt too. I mean, consumer debt is at all-time highs and they're still looking to spend more. Again, this has just got to crash and burn before too much longer. It certainly can have nothing but a negative effect on the market and on the economy. Yeah, I think there's a fairly narrow runway where we could see 
productivity under the right leader in the next presidency where we might be able to escape a big problem. But man, if we have another four years of this, it's definitely not going to be good. You know, depending on how you look at it, it could be the beginning of the end for us, you know, and and I hate to even say that because I love this country with all of my heart. And I think that, you know, freedom has shown to be the best way to make money, the best way to live life. And we're talking about, I mean, that's on the ballot. This next go round here, you know, is the existential crisis of this country and the rest of the world subverting us or playing us or using us. That's what's on the ballot next time. So we got to be diligent. We got to get out and vote and we got to hold people accountable that are our elected officials. We need to hold the process accountable and, you know, go down that rabbit hole, but we need to make sure that, that things are fair and things are done the right way. You know, there's just too much at stake. It's too important, and it's hard to emphasize that enough, you know, and and like you said, Jeff, there's a lot of cracks kind of coming through. One of the things we saw last week was the housing starts. So a housing start is basically where a builder starts building a new house. So they get a permit and they start building the house. Housing starts kind of had their first big miss in a long time, and, and builders are starting to be less optimistic about the future, and they're building less houses. They don't want to be stuck with 60 houses when the music stops, right? Right. And so they're, they're starting to slow down. Why? Because demand is slowing down, and they're concerned that the music is about to stop, and they're going to be left without a chair. And so if you look at why a builder would slow down, you know that's going to have to give some of these banks that are lending money to build these houses pause. They're the ones making it possible. And so if they see this data from housing starts and these builders starting to lose faith and focus, I wouldn't be surprised to see banks start to say, you know what, maybe we're going to back off on lending money right now. We're only going to lend to the most credit worthy and we're going to mm-hmm. keep increasing the interest rate to make it worth our while. Otherwise, we're not going to do it. And the problem is, is that's kind of a snowball rolling downhill as that starts to happen. You know, pretty soon it's going to be, all right, this bank totally shuts it off. And then productivity goes down. Then spending goes down because that money's not available to spend. And then pretty soon people are being laid off. Unemployment starts going up. And now you've got a fairly serious problem on your hands. And so, you know, we're starting to see some of the cracks there. You know, who knows what that'll actually turn into. And I'm not saying, you know, we're at the end here. I'm just simply saying that the housing market is not nearly as resilient as it has been for the last couple of years. And the housing market is a pretty big deal. It's a huge factor in the economy. And there's just a lot of things not going the right way. And hence my last comment, you know, again, I think this election is, you could argue might be the most important election we've ever had in this country, certainly in the last 150 years, you know, so it's, it's important to keep our eye on the ball here. Jake, I have read as well, too, that there is the possibility of another rate hike this year. I've also read that maybe we won't have a rate hike and we'll have rate reductions. What's your feeling on that and how that would affect people? You know, it's hard to say. I think there's a lot of people thinking that the Fed is just getting ready to start dropping rates. You know, there's a lot of people on Wall Street going, well, the Fed's going to be dropping rates before you know it. And as I've said before on this show, you know, as the Chinese say, be careful what you wish for, because if the Fed starts lowering rates, it'll be because the world is falling apart. And so, you know, I don't see that on the immediate horizon. I do think two years from now, interest rates will be near or at zero, probably, because I think the Fed will continue the pressure until something breaks. It'll likely be the banking system. And again, as we've said many times on this show, I'm not saying that you're going to have trouble going to get your money. I just think that the banks are going to be under a lot of pressure and they're going to lose a lot of money. And the market's not going to like that very much. And so the Fed will have no choice but to relieve the pressure 
that they're exerting, frankly, with the interest rates, and they will start to lower interest rates. And so, you know, that's kind of good and kind of bad. You know, the market likes really low interest rates, so the markets tend to do really well there. But at the same time, there's going to be pain that goes along with it. And so we'll just have to play it by ear a little bit and see how everything goes over this election cycle and beyond. Our show is called Show Me the Money with Jake Floyd. My name is Jeff Shade. And Jake, before we continue, I want to take just a moment here to remind our listeners how they can have a conversation with you to ask their questions about the market and the economy and the direction that we're going in. So if you need answers, request your no cost, no obligation, and most importantly, I think no judgment Floyd Financial Group Retirement Review. You can get it by calling 417-889-7233. 417-889-7233. Just a casual conversation between you and Jake. Sit with Jake. Ask him your questions about the economy and the market and how it will affect you in your journey to a retirement. Now, when you call that number, you'll get a friendly voice on the other end of the line, more than likely Ashley. She'll get some basic information from you, then set you up with a conversation with Jake to create that path towards a successful retirement. And remember, you could be retired for 30 plus years. Now, remember, it's not going to cost you a dime, but it could uncover some blind spots that when addressed may help you improve your quality of life in a retirement that could last one once again, 30 plus years. Once again, that number 417-889-7233. It's 417-889-7233. Or you can request your complimentary consultation online at floydfinancialgroup.com. Ready for another helping of some more real money talk? Thought so. Now, here's another serving of Show Me the Money with your hosts, Jake Floyd and Jeff Shane. Welcome back to Show Me the Money. I'm Jake Floyd, and in this segment, we're going to talk about how the stock market movements can be counterintuitive. And that's an interesting comment that you made there, stock market movements counterintuitive. What do you mean by that? So the market has a tendency to do the opposite of what other people are thinking that it's going to do. If everybody is leaning one way, meaning everybody's saying the market's going to go up, it's going to go up and it's not going to come down and it's going to be really good. The market has a tendency to not do that. And so I want to kind of take a minute and explore the psychology of the stock market and the collective behavior of all the investors, professional and retail, and kind of explore that a little bit. Because I think there's a lot of people that feel like the market does not do anything that's that's predictable and it always seems to be doing maybe the opposite of what it should be doing. And in a lot of ways, they're right. So once again, Jake, what do you mean by that last statement? So when we're looking at any asset and the price of any asset, so let's take real estate, for example, because I think it's the easiest one for people to see. Uh, over the last three to five years, what has happened in real estate? Why is real estate so much more expensive than it was three or even five years ago? And the answer is, if we have more buyers than sellers of any asset, prices tend to go up, right? So housing has gone crazy based on the fact that there's been 20 buyers for every house on the market. Mm -hmm. So you can barely get the house listed. And, and, and recently, this has eased up a little bit. But certainly a year ago, two years ago, you can barely get the house listed before you get three cash offers, unseen property. Right. And they're just beating your door down because they know if they don't make an offer within the first hour or two of it being listed, that there's no chance of them getting it. So for anybody who's been on the planet longer than about 20 years, they, they will know that that's not been the case for the previous history of 40 years in the housing market. <laughs> this is a new issue that we have that normally in the housing market, you know, at the very least, it's kind of a two-sided street, you know, where you have, hey, I want to pay this for the house. Well, hey, I have to sell my house. We have contingencies and all that. You know, right now, it's like if you don't have cash and you're not ready to close next week, you basically don't get to bid if, mm -hmm. if the house is priced decently. So 
Again, why is that? It's because there's so many more buyers than there are sellers. So if we relate that back to the stock market, okay, we, we always want to, we always talk about, hey, you know, we want to buy low and sell high. That's the old adage, right? So what does that actually look like in practicality? So if we think back to right before the dip in 2020 due to COVID, February of 2020, you know, if we look at the environment on that day, when right before COVID happened, it looked like a pretty good time to invest, right? We had all-time low unemployment. We had the first real wage growth that we've seen in about 12 years. You know, prices are very stable. We had them between 1% and 2% inflation, which is where we've been trying to get to for a decade. And, you know, it was kind of all quiet. Everything was okay on the front there. And that's when you really want to be careful. And the reason for that is if it looks like a great time to invest, probably everybody who is going to buy or invest in the stock market has already done it, which means in my buyers versus sellers equation, you know, where am I at in that? If, if the last person who, has, who is going to buy in has bought in, and there's no more money for them to invest, and there's nobody willing to invest left, that means all I have left is sellers. Mm -hmm. And as we know, if I have more buyers than sellers, it goes up. But if I have more sellers than buyers, that means things go down. And sometimes it seems like there's no reason for it to go down. It's simply supply and demand, and having more sellers than buyers can cause stocks to go down seemingly for no reason. Now, conversely, on the other side of that, during COVID, you know, the market went down about 35% in 20 sessions. And so that was a really interesting time because, you know, the market's going down. We know that COVID is temporary, but at the same time, people are still in ultra panic mode. Mm -hmm. Liquidity is kind of going by the wayside. We're concerned everybody's going to die of COVID because they told us it was an 8% death rate in the beginning. And we laid off a third of the workforce. We forced everybody to stay in their houses. So it looks pretty horrible, right? And so if you weren't going to sell in that environment, you probably weren't going to sell. So the bottom was formed when the last person who was going to sell their stock sold. And so the market started to go up way before things started to get better. And people are kind of scratching their heads like, how is this possible? You know, why is this going up when things are still so bad? And I think a lot of people mistake that the stock market is the same thing as the economy. Those are two totally separate things. And while one does certainly have implications on the other, they can operate very independently or one can operate with a significant lag to the other. And so it's important to understand that they are two separate entities, if you will. So if I'm hearing you correctly, Jake, is that when things are going great guns, you know, the market is doing fantastic and if people are in a buying frenzy and so forth, that is not the time to be buying. If I'm hearing you right, it's when things go down and, you know, we're at the bottom of the heap here and it doesn't seem as if, you know, anybody's buying anything. That's the time to get in. I think Warren Buffett once said the time to buy is when blood is running in the streets. Is that about right or am I wrong about that? I think that's some of the wisest words that were ever spoken about the stock market. And, you know, Mr. Buffett, I don't agree with him politically, but uh, when it comes to the market, it's very hard to argue with his results and his investment strategies. And certainly as a value investor, which is a little bit the way that we invest, you know, I don't just buy whatever the hottest stock is out there at any price. I want to make sure that we're buying things at a good price. I think that, like he said, buy when there's blood in streets. And there was, I think there was actually a, another part to that that he said on one occasion, he said, especially when some of it's yours. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so if you're one of the one putting blood in the streets because you're getting slaughtered, right, then, you know, the correct move there is not to sell out at that point, especially when it's 
that's really bad because the chances of the market going lower when it's already down 30% or whatever are much less. Now, again, we have to keep an eye toward risk tolerance and goals and your, please, I want to make sure everybody listening understands that I'm not giving blanket advice here. But as a rule, selling when things are bad is, is not rewarded, at least in the history of the U.S. stock market. And, you know, assuming the world continues on, you know, things will get better and we will likely be wishing we had not sold if we sell in a panic mode. And so I definitely agree with all that that he said. And the question mark kind of remains to my point earlier, if we have the market, and again, I think if people look around right now, and I think the average person listening to this show would say, you know, things don't look particularly good right now. We have the questionable intelligence person in the White House. We have Congress kind of spending us into oblivion, like we like we talked about earlier. We have you know Ukraine and Taiwan, and we have you know these people trying to put masks on us again, and all these types of things. I think a lot of people are concerned about that, and they should be. However, if you think about that in the context of what I said earlier, are we closer to the bottom or the top because of how things look? I would suggest that it's possible that a lot of this is already priced into the market and the market would be much higher if we didn't have all these things hanging over us. So if you look at the rest of the world, a lot of the other stock markets are at all-time highs. Mm -hmm. You know, we're not even close to getting back to even at this point. And some of the markets are quite a bit higher than they've ever been, uh, way above the 2020, 2021 highs. And so I'm wondering if we are already sandbagging ourselves, and if we start to get some good news, this market could be poised to move higher. That doesn't mean it can't go lower first. You know, I'm not saying I know the future. I'm just simply saying that if we evaluate everything as a whole, I think people are very aware of the negatives, which would suggest that they have bought or sold based on that information. And so it'll be interesting to see how all this unfolds. I do think there's some volatility ahead with the election cycle, but I really think two to five years from now, we are going to want to have been invested. I think things are going to go much higher in the next two to five years. The question is, you know, is it more like six months or is it two years that before it starts to get really good again? And I think, I think we may all be surprised by how resilient everything is largely because of what I talked about earlier in this segment. I realize this is kind of detailed stuff and we're a little in the weeds here, but mathematically, it's likely that a lot of this stuff is priced in here. And while we could go lower, we may not go a lot lower before things start to get better. So as we've said before, Jake, on this program, no one has a crystal ball, at least one that works. We cannot foretell the future. All we can do is take the information that we have in front of us and make the best decision based on that. But if someone is looking to invest in the stock market or they're in the market right now, considering what is going on, and again, it's up to the individual person. We can't give blanket advice here. But for those people who are still a little bit nervous and sitting on the sidelines, would you say that it's okay to wait and see? Or are you saying that, you know, when things are down like this, we should jump? I mean, what would you tell someone who's sitting in front of you? Yeah, I don't think we're low enough yet to where we need to be pounding on the table, so to speak, you know, that we need to be getting in here, especially because the rate at which we can get paid to wait, meaning you can make four or 5% on safe and relatively liquid money. You know, there's not a hurry, I don't think at this point, but I think there's some people thinking it's going to be years before it gets good again. And I'm not sure that that's the case. And we may end up missing out if we wait too long. For me, I'm going to be really paying attention to how the banks fare over the next two to three months. And then I'm going to be focused on the primary election and see, you know, who comes out as the front runner. I have my suspicions, but we will see how everything goes. You know, they've thrown pretty much everything they possibly can at Trump. 
you know, we'll see what happens. You know, clearly the establishment also is not a big fan of Mr. Robert Kennedy Jr. And so that it'll be interesting to see how all that unfolds over the next six months and who they may or may not try to replace Biden with, you know, whether it be Harris or Michelle Obama or Gavin Newsom, all of which I think are easily <laughs> defeated. Yeah. <laughs> but at the same time, that will have implications on markets and people's panic factor, if you will, based on who that is. And, and as the race evolves, I think that will change. If it starts to look like we get Trump or DeSantis or Vivek or a handful of other people in there, even Robert Kennedy Jr., I think the market will start soaring because I think right now the status quo or what people are expecting is four more years of Biden. And that's what I mean by pricing this stuff in. Meaning if that turns out to be wrong, the market is likely undervalued here. And so that's why you need somebody paying attention. We need to have an eye toward risk tolerance though, right? We can't just like jump all in here, but we need to have somebody managing assets that's actually watching what's going on day to day. Because if you don't have anybody that's that's watching what's happening, there's a couple things that can happen. Number one, you know, you can just get clobbered and they'll just tell you, hey, just hang in there. It's going to be just fine. Or they may not make adjustments that need to be made and they may be underinvested. And when this thing starts to run, they may just sit there and allow you to not participate to the extent that you should. But it's important to have these strategies in place, have your risk tolerance in place, and have a plan that works in any type of financial weather, whether it be good or bad. If you have questions about investing in a counterintuitive market, then get in touch with Jake there at Floyd Financial Group and ask for your no-cost, no-obligation financial review. Again, it's not going to cost you a dime. That number, 417-889-7233, 417-889-7233. A chance for you to sit down with Jake, ask your specific questions, and get get the answers that you need to put you on a path towards retirement that could last 30 plus years. Once again, no cost, no obligation for this. It is 417-889-7233. You can also request it online at floydfinancialgroup.com. If you're just joining us, this is Show Me the Money with Jake Floyd. My name is Jeff Shade. And if you want to hear the show again, don't worry. We're also a podcast. Just go to wherever you get your podcasts and search for Show Me the Money with Jake Floyd. You'll get this show and all of our past shows so that you can stay on top of your wealth and your journey to a successful retirement. Ready to climb a mountain of financial know-how? Good, because it's time for more Show Me the Money with your financial Sherpa, Jake Floyd. Welcome back to Show Me the Money. I'm Jake Floyd, and in this segment, we're going to be talking about six common retirement planning myths. And Jake, I'm surprised that there are just six that we're going to talk about. There are probably 10 or 20 of those, but we want to focus on the top six in this particular segment. So let's start off with myth number one. I don't need to revisit my withdrawal rate. I said it, and I'm just going to forget it now. Yeah, so I think a lot of people intuitively in their mind know that they need to revisit this. But because of the way Wall Street and other financial firms and just the establishment of money in general says, hey, you need to obey the 4% rule, right? So the 4% rule means let's take whatever amount of money we have. Let's say if, if you have a million dollars, if you want to take a 4% withdrawal rate, that would be 40000 a year to avoid running out of money, risking running out of money. And I think that's okay, but how often should we revisit how much money we're withdrawing? So depending on what happens in markets, obviously if markets come down, you could be withdrawing much more than 4% if we were to have a drawdown. 
But at the same time, if the market is kind to you and you're only taking 4%, it's conceivable that after 10 years, you could be at a million and a half dollars, which means 4% of that number would then be half again as much money or 60,000 a year, right? So this is definitely a case by case basis as far as when you should revisit your withdrawal rate, but you absolutely should do that. That's why it's important to have reviews with your financial advisor and say, hey, you know, I'm taking this money out. Is this still a good idea? How are markets looking? How are we doing with our original plan? Is it, are we on track to keep doing what we're doing? Or, you know, if markets have been good, which again, the last couple of years have been kind of rough, but the preceding six or seven years were really good, right? And so we had a lot of people where we gave raises to them and said, hey, yeah, we, we made a bunch of money. Let's take a little more money out. Let's help fight inflation and all those kinds of things, which we always build that kind of in, in the, on the front end to make sure that people are going to have at least some offset for inflation. We're not going to just, if you're, if you're at that million and 40,000 number we talked about, we're not just going to make you take 40,000 for the next 30 years, right? Because your, <laughs> your buying power is going to go down right. significantly. But this is a question that we get sometimes. And I do think that it's important to review this. In my opinion, it's probably something you should talk about every year and say, hey, you know, here's what we're doing. Should we make adjustments and when and why kind of a thing. And Jake, is inflation the main factor that affects withdrawal rates or is it stock prices and any number of other things? I would imagine that it's, you know, how your investments are performing, but is inflation at the top of the list? You know, I think that inflation is a very important part of that. However, inflation you know, has been relatively muted for the previous 20 years before the last two, right? We were struggling to get to 2% inflation. Now we're trying to get it back down to two, but we were printing untold amounts of money to try to get it to 2%. We're trying to increase inflation. So inflation hasn't really been, if you've been retired for the last 20 years, inflation hasn't been a big factor until the last 18 months to two years. But now that it's here, we're probably not going to have prices drop. So we do need to adjust for that. But I would say a lot of it is really more investment performance and, you know, overall health. You know, that's a big factor. If, if you have a, a history, a family history of people living to 100, and if you're in decent health, you know, we need to at least plan for the fact that you might get there. You know, we can't just cavalierly say, well, I'm not going to live that long. Well, what happens if you do? You don't want to be out of money. So I think mm-hmm. most people tend to underguess instead of overguess how long they're going to live. I, I talk to people all the time, be like, I never thought I was going to be able, live to see retirement, you know? So here I am in retirement. Now I don't know what to do. Or, you know, I'm not going to live to see 80, so I'm not worried about making my money last till I'm 95. Well, again, as a financial advisor, I can tell you that most people live longer than they think they're going to. Most people don't come in saying, hey, I'm going to live to 105 and then pass away at 85. You know, it's more, I think I'm going to live to be 78 or 80, and then they live to be 90. So I think that's a big factor. And just revisiting that from time to time, I think is important when it comes to withdrawal rate. We're breaking down six common retirement planning myths with Jake Floyd of Floyd Financial Group. Myth number two, Jake, is that Medicare is going to cover all of my health care costs. Not necessarily true. So Medicare is, for the vast majority of people in today's world, a big upgrade when it comes to health insurance for your daily, everyday health care, right? So you go into the doctor, getting scans done if necessary, you know, all that type of stuff. Where Medicare has huge holes is when it comes to long-term care. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I don't want to go over all the nitty-gritty of all this, but I think the big thing that I, probably the, one of the biggest myths out there is that Medicare is going to cover a nursing home. And that's absolutely not the case. They can cover up to a certain amount of time as long as you're in what's known as a a rehabilitative state, meaning if you're getting better. But the second you stop getting better, 
Medicare is going to cut you off there. And as a lot of people are aware, nursing homes are incredibly expensive in today's world. In fact, even here in the last bastion of sanity, it's becoming less sane. <laughs> and uh, right. you know, the cost of a nursing home is seven or $8,000 a month, which is just a huge number. I remember 15 years ago, there was lots of them out there in the 4,000 a month range. And so it can eat up a lot of assets in a hurry. And Medicare is definitely not going to cover long-term care type costs where there's no rehabilitative state present. And keep in mind, too, as we said, Medicare doesn't cover everything, and that would include probably most of the cost of hearing aids, things like vision. But most importantly, check with your Medicare expert to find out what Medicare will cover and then plan for the expenses that you will incur on the things that Medicare does not cover. But all in all, Medicare, as you said, is an upgrade for people insofar as insurance goes. The next retirement myth that people believe is Social Security is not going to last. I better take it at the first moment that I can get it because I may only have it for a couple of years. Yeah, so I think there's a lot of people thinking that Social Security is just going to go away. I don't personally believe that. I just don't think that the government wants to lose that many voters because if you just took Social Security away, there's a lot of people that couldn't live. Probably 15, 20% of the population right. wouldn't be able to feed themselves. You know, And while I do think that there are some people out there that evil, I do think that they also like to get reelected. And so it's not something I worry a lot about. However, I do think that they are going to have to reduce benefits for all or some group of people in order to keep it solvent. And so this is something we talked a little bit in the past. and something that we talk about with most clients that come in. I am a little bit of a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush kind of a guy. And I say that because if they're going to lower benefit rates on Social Security, it will be likely that they will grandfather in anybody that has already elected because they don't want to actually take money out of their pockets. Mm -hmm. But anybody that has not elected already could be subject to those types of cuts. And so usually the biggest determining factor in determining when to file Social Security is whether or not you're still working. Some people wonder whether they should turn it on while they're still working. That depends a little bit on income and some other factors. But, you know, if you're before your full retirement age, you have to pay back, you know, two for one, anything you make over 20500 So we don't want to turn on Social Security just to pay it back. But at the same time, if you're totally retired, in most cases, in my opinion, I like the idea of the client maintaining as much control of their money as possible. So if I can spend the government's money and save your retirement money, then what that does is give you more control and more options looking forward. Instead of spending your money trying to maximize Social Security, which, yes, you get a bigger payment by doing that out of Social Security, but at the same time, you're totally at the mercy of what happens to Social Security in the future. And so all things equal, we err a little bit to the side of filing earlier rather than later, but that is very much a case-by-case -case basis. So if you're listening to the program today, you're already taking Social Security or you're about to take Social Security, probably it's not going to change that much for you. But for younger folks like you, Jake, I mean, don't count on it being the way that it is right now because Social Security, with no changes whatsoever, it looks like that it's going to be running out, you know, 2033, something like that. But I do think that they'll make some changes in order to make that last. We're talking about retirement myths here on Show Me the Money with Jake Floyd. The next one is, you know, I'm going to just work as long as I need to. It doesn't make any difference if I feel like, you know, I don't have enough money. I'll just keep working until I'm 80 years old. 
Yeah, I would say, especially depending on what you do for a living, that may be more realistic than for other people. You know, uh, certainly if you're a welder or a tile layer or a plumber or something like that, the body mayor may not have uh, something else in mind right. when it comes to that, you know, and, and there's people that have trouble making it to 65 because the body just kind of gives out on them. You know, sure. they have knee replacements and things like that, depending on what they do, especially more menial type labor. You know, so I, th- I think it's it's a little bit less up to people than they think it might be. Now, if you're a software engineer or you have a job that's, you know, purely desk work, you have a little more control over that. But at the same time, you know, you just don't know what a day will bring, as my dad likes to say. And I think that, you know, it's important to not have a plan that hinges on you working till you're 70 or 72, because it's possible that you may not be able to work that long. So, you know, that's one of the one of the many things that we can discuss when you come in for your free consultation with us. And we want to explore all that as much as possible. But we need to have a backup plan if that is your plan is to work to 70. We need to have a backup plan in case you're not able to for whatever reason so that we're not just putting all our eggs in one basket and and hoping for the best. So not only can your body give out, but your brain can give out as well. I mean, you know, yes. think about this dementia. And there's also Alzheimer's, which is a form of dementia. But as I said, you know, you've got a plan for not depending upon your body or your brain until you're 80 years old. Next myth here, Jake, is I'll spend less and pay less in taxes. Yeah, so I think there's a little bit of truth to that, but I think that a lot of people are thinking maybe, you know, I won't have to pay any taxes, that kind of thing. That's definitely not the case. I think when we, when people think about taxes, they're thinking income tax, right? right? And so where it is a little bit true is you're going to not pay Social Security tax once you're retired. You're not going to pay FICA anymore, which is a form of tax. You're also not going to be funding your 401k if you start drawing out of it, right? And so the actual amount of money that you spend typically stays about the same, but you don't necessarily need to make as much money to end up with the same amount of money after all the expenses come out simply because you are being taxed a little bit less. But the idea that you're going to spend significantly less is not really true. Your your spending doesn't typically change that much. Um, And there are exceptions to that, but your spending typically doesn't go down. But because your taxes come down, not in the form of income tax, but in ancillary taxes, so to speak, I think that's where that myth kind of comes from. Say, I'll spend less. It's not really that you're spending less. You just don't need as much to end up at the same amount. And the final retirement myth, Jake, here is I'm going to live in the same place throughout my retirement. I bought this house when I had four kids. They're out, but I like my house. I'm just going to stay here on these four acres of land until, you know, I just can't do it anymore. I think most people probably, when they get into retirement, at least they think about moving somewhere else. Yeah, I think that a lot of that has to do with where their kids are and their grandkids are, right? Uh, so I know any ladies out there listening for sure are going <laughs> to gonna agree with that, right? They say that grandkids are way better than kids. And yeah. I, I ask a lot of people, you know, because I'm, uh, I'm a younger guy, obviously, and so I don't have any grandkids. And uh, so I, I usually pose that question to a lot of my clients <laughs> and say, are, are grandkids really better than kids? Yeah. And you kind of expect them to go, well, I love my kids, but that's not what they do. They go, yes, they're much better. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can tell you what your dad has said because I can have fun with the grandkids and then when I'm done I can just give them back. 
That's it. And that's pretty much the explanation <laughs> I get out of everybody. But, you know, a lot of grandparents definitely want to be around their grandkids. And if they don't live close by or if their kids move away, it's very common for them to follow and try to be closer to family because you realize, I think, as you get retired and you get toward the last third of life or so, I think right. you start to really realize what's important. I try to soak up as much of that wisdom from my clients as I can. And people will share that wisdom with you if you will allow them to do so. But I think that there's a lot of wisdom in watching people and what's important to them toward the end of life is probably something that we should all focus more on in the middle and beginning of life that we just don't know to. But, you know, seeking out family is probably the number one reason for right. people to move once they're retired. And, you know, some people will stay right where they're at, but there are a lot of people that, you know, they want to make sure they're close to their kids. If their kids are close by, then yeah, you're probably not going to move. But if your kids live further away, you know, I'd be like, hey, you know, rather than flying out here twice a year, mm -hmm. if we move up there, we can even close to them. Maybe we drive one or two hours, but we could do it six or seven times a year instead of right. once or twice a year. So I think that's a big factor. And I do think people are surprised sometimes that they do want to move away when they kind of thought that they would, maybe they already own their, their final resting place, so to speak. But you know, you just never know what life will throw at you. Yeah, no, you don't at all. Then when you move close to the kids, then they decide to move yet another time. You can't be following kids all around the country. And as you said, I mean, even your dad, Randy, has said, you know, we had Jake and we had Miranda at, at home. We had this big house with a basement and all this, and then we just didn't need it anymore. So we moved to another house. So that is another thing that you have to consider is that there's a probably a pretty reasonable possibility that in retirement, you'll at least think about if not move completely. We're talking with Jake Floyd here at Floyd Financial Group, and we have dispelled six common retirement planning myths. If you'd like to get in and sit down with Jake and ask your particular questions and get your no-cost, no-obligation, no-judgment retirement review, you can get it by calling 417-889-7233. It's 417-889-7233. You can also request it online at floydfinancialgroup.com. It's floydfinancialgroup.com. We're here to help you. Time for a break, Jake. We'll be right back with the final segment of Show Me the Money right here on 104.1 FM KSGF, where Springfield comes to talk. People of the Ozarks, step away from the fishing pole and prepare to be shown the money because we're back with more straight talk and honest answers with Jake Floyd and Jeff Shade. Welcome back to Show Me the Money. I'm Jake Floyd, and in this segment, we're going to be talking about how long retirement savings will last. And Jake, you know, retirement lasts longer today than it did almost 80 years ago when Social Security was instituted in 1935 when the Social Security Act set the retirement age at 65. The average retiree could expect to live about five more years. But boy, how times have changed completely with medical advancements and so forth. I mean, these days, I think you're running retirement plans. A lot of people that I've talked to run them out to 90 and 100 years old. So is that a common question that you get in your reviews is based on what you're seeing? How long can I live on these retirement savings? Absolutely, Jeff. And, you know, we try to set up the plans to where, you know, we're withdrawing an amount of money that, you know, we're pretty confident we can earn so that we're not having a situation where the retirement savings spend down. If we're not spending them down in retirement, then we don't have to worry about how long it's going to last because if you're still building it, right, you're not spending it down. However, as we talked about last week, we do a lot of stress testing. So we, we kind of look at, okay, here's the ideal scenario that we want to go for. Here's how much money we would take out. Here's how much money we think we can expect to earn. But what if that doesn't go according to plan. You know, what happens if things go sideways and growth isn't as good as we thought and the markets are more volatile than we thought or whatever the case may be? You know, we try to account for all that ahead of time in the plan so that no matter what kind of financial weather comes our way, 
we can kind of help that portfolio be smooth and make sure we have the highest chance of success possible as we build these retirement savings plans. So probably the primary factor into how well that's going to go is how much you're withdrawing from your savings, right? So we've talked about, you know, the 4% rule even earlier today, meaning we withdraw 4% off of a balance. And that's kind of a safe number with air quotes around it. It's really a little bit more than just your withdrawal rate, but that is a very important factor. If you're withdrawing 4% and you have, you know, kind of a moderate portfolio set up, it's going to be very difficult to run out of money because you're simply not spending enough and you have an eye toward risk mitigation. However, if you are withdrawing 8 or 10% per year, you can almost be sure that you're going to run out of money if you live longer than another 10 or 15 years. And so that one factor is probably the most important factor. But when we set up plans, I like to run them forward somewhere between 25 and 35 years of retirement, because that's going to cover 99.9% of everybody. It depends a little bit on when you retire. So I have some people that retire at 52 or 53. Obviously, we better plan on longer than 25 years for those people, Mm -hmm. because they'll only be 77 when they're 25 years into retirement. So what age you retire at, I think, is part of that as well. What you are going to do with your time as well is another big factor. Some people, you know, everything they like to do costs money. (laughs) Do you know anybody like that, Jeff? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I can go and look in the mirror. Yeah, everything I like to do seems to cost money. Yeah, I think there's some people that are perfectly fine to take the fishing pole they've been fishing with for the last 15 years and just take it out. You know, you buy some night crawlers for three bucks at the store and you're good to go. Some people want to go to Paris and go shopping and see Taylor Swift concerts and, you know, that type of stuff. And that obviously costs a lot more money. And so understanding how your spending habits will change or remain the same, depending on the person, is also a really important factor when it comes to not running out of money. Yeah, I have to chuckle because I want to go to Paris. Well, my wife wants to go to Paris, and I know what she's talking about. I want to go to Paris, too, but hey, there's a Paris, Kentucky. There's also an Athens, Ohio, so if I want to go to (laughs) Paris and Athens, I'll go there. Anyway, we're talking about how long will my retirement savings last, and I would imagine, Jake, that it depends upon how much money you spend when you get older, and a lot of people, you know, last segment we talked about misconceptions, that there's a big misconception that as I get older, my expenses are going to decrease significantly, but not necessarily the case. Yeah, I would say, especially once we factor in healthcare costs, you know, it has a tendency to fill in money that we would not otherwise spend because we we don't have our health, but simply the healthcare cost goes up too. So I, I would say that's true though in the last five to 10 years of life, but that could be in your 70s for some people and it could be in your 90s for other people. So we have to set up a plan that doesn't hinge on you dying early, right? <laughs> like like nobody wants to, it's it's a little bit like life insurance, right? We don't wanna have to die to get it. You know, we, right. we wanna be able to have success in retirement without having to die before things get hard, you know? And so setting all that up on the front end and what you do in the first couple to five years of retirement echoes throughout the rest of your retirement, meaning any money that we spend up front, which we can spend money up front and and we can, you know, we can work that into a plan, but anything you spend in the first five years of retirement is like spending six times as much in the last five years of your retirement, or depending on the person, depending on the math. But you know, if I want to go on a vacation that costs ten thousand dollars the first year of my retirement, that's likely going to cost me sixty thousand dollars off of my inheritance to whoever it goes to at the end of retirement, or my ability to spend money later in retirement. So if you think about that, being careful in those first few years also has a big impact on you know your success rate. 
And so if, if you're one of those people that wants to spend more early in retirement and then maybe spend a little bit less as you get older and as health less allows you less, we can account for that, but we need to do that on the front end, not you know halfway through retirement when we're starting to spend our money down at too fast a rate. So it's definitely something we can account for, but that's really what the plan is about. We talk on the show a lot about having a plan. And so part of having that plan is accounting for all these little details. So anybody that's been in to see me can tell you that I do ask questions, you know, about what you have as far as retirement assets and that kind of thing. But I ask a lot more questions about, you know, what's important to you. Everything from politically to your kids, to what you like to do for fun, to how's your health, all those things probably have as big of an impact on it as what you've saved. You know, and so understanding each person and understanding that each person is different. Sometimes we'll use the same tools, but we use them in a different way for a different reason. But we don't just kind of rubber stamp people's plans together. I really want to understand who you are and what makes you tick and understand, you know, what's important to you. Once I understand that, I have a much better probability of putting together a successful retirement plan that's going to last as long as you can. Yeah, and that's one of the things I love about Floyd Financial Group is, as you said, there are no rubber-stamped plans here. Everything is tailored to the individual, your wants, your needs, your goals, your wishes, and your desires. We're talking about how long your retirement savings will last. I would certainly imagine, Jake, that inflation figures into this in a great manner. Now, we had inflation around 2% for a long period of time, and then all of a sudden it jumped up to 8.7%. I mean, it's down to 4%, but it's not dropping. It seems to be going up a little bit. So do you have a figure that you use for inflation when figuring out these plans so that, you know, someone's money lasts as long as they do? Yeah, so I think it's important to account for inflation. I don't think you need to account for 100% of all inflation possibilities, right? You know, because a lot of people came to me over the last couple of years and they say, well, inflation's 9%. How do we account for that over the next 30 years of 9%? And the answer is you don't. Because if you account for 9% inflation for 30 years, you know, you're going to need 10 times as much money later as you have as you need right now. And nobody has enough money saved to make that work. I think it's important to have an eye toward inflation. If we look at like the last 30 or 40 years of inflation history, you know, I think the average number is around 2.2%. And so we try to guide around that number as far as inflation adjustments go. But a lot of times people's other spending habits end up controlling how much they get in retirement more than just the inflationary aspect of it. So again, like we talked about earlier in the show, we like to get together with people at least once a year. In the beginning, a lot of times we'll meet every 90 days just to really you know, make sure your income is the right amount and that kind of thing. Cause it's, there's a little bit of guesswork coming in there as far as how much you're going to spend. And you don't really know exactly what you're going to do with your extra 40 hours a week you just found. And so it's a little bit of an art massaging that in, but as time goes forward, you know, it's a, it's an ever changing, ever moving target. And that's what the retirement advisor is here for is to help account for that and offer wisdom in the, in the form of, you know, you're going to retire once most likely versus at this point I have helped retire hire hundreds and hundreds of people. So there's a lot of things that I can see simply through repetition that you may not be able to see yet. And so I can help avoid and sidestep some of those landmines out there. But when it comes to inflation, yeah, we want to account for it, but we don't, we don't need to go way off the deep end. You know, inflation's not going to stay at 9% per year. Uh, that's just, you know, we've already seen it come down some, but I think it's likely that in the long haul, we will probably have the opposite problem again at some point because our population as a country is decreasing. 
And so depending on what we do with immigration and that kind of thing, you know, there's a lot of deflationary pressures on the market as the baby boomers retire and they're retiring in droves right now. So we are concerned about it and we have an eye toward it, but we don't have to go off the deep end and try to factor in some crazy number like six or 7% every year for inflation because it's, it's just not going to be that high. Jake, I want to expand a little bit on something that you said just a moment ago, and that is the personal responsibility that you have as a client to make your money last as long as you do. I mean, you set up these plans and you say, hey, you can withdraw four, five, six, seven percent, but then it's up to the individual to actually do that. And sometimes, you know, as emotional human beings, we see something shiny, we want it, and then plans go derailed. Yeah, I think, you know, everybody's has a different level of susceptibility to that. You know, there's some people that have a hard time getting to spend 2% of their retirement assets a year, you know, and then I have other people that are always wanting to have more money, you know, and they're like, can we squeeze a little bit more out? I want to spend a little bit more money. And and it's not my job to tell you no, necessarily, right? It's my job to help you make an informed decision. So if somebody right. comes to me and says, hey, I'm taking 5%, I want to double that and start taking 10% out. It's my job to let you know where that road leads which it leads to you running out of money in 13 to 15 years is where that road leads. And if you're okay with that, it is certainly your money and I will not try to stop you from doing it. But it is my job to offer cautionary advice or to offer comforting advice to those who maybe have a harder time spending money that they've done a great job saving for the last 40 years. There's a lot of people that have trouble, especially a lot of people listening to the show, I would I would suspect the more conservatively minded somebody is, the harder time they have actually spending the money they've saved. You know, and say, hey, it's okay to spend a little bit of this. You're not going to run out. And let me show you how the math works there. And so I have it on both ends of the spectrum. But yeah, I think, I think it's my job to offer the advice so that you can make the best decisions. It's not my job to say, hey, this is your money, but you can't spend it because I don't want you to run out. Mm-hmm. It's my job just to let you know the consequences of what you're doing. And if that's okay with you, then we'll absolutely set that up and, and do it the best way you want it to go. Yeah. And sometimes there are people who come in and say, Jake, I've got to have this emergency Bugatti Veyron or something like that. Can you <laughs> find me another two, three hundred thousand dollars here? But yeah, I mean, you can tell people that probably would not be the best thing. But after all, it is your money. If you'd rather have that Bugatti than maybe being able to pay for electricity in your house and go ahead and do it. But you'll be doing it against my best advice. We're talking with Jake Floyd of Floyd Financial Group. Our topic here has been how long will my retirement savings last? If that is a question that you would like to have answered, Again, we want you to get in and sit down and have a friendly conversation with Jake about that. You can talk about anything you want as it relates to retirement. And we call this our Retirement Roadmap, our Retirement Review. To get yours at no cost, no obligation, call 417-889-7233. 417-889-7233. Now, this is just going to be a very casual conversation between you and Jake. Again, there's no obligation for this whatsoever. It's just a chance for you to get your questions answered so that we can put you on a path to retirement that could last as long as 30 years. Once again, that number, 417-889-7233. You can also request your no-cost, no-obligation, no-judgment financial plan online at floydfinancialgroup.com. It's floydfinancialgroup.com. Jake, we're out of time for this week. I certainly want to thank you for your time this Saturday morning. But most of all, I want to thank our fine listeners here, the last bastion of sanity, Springfield, Missouri, for joining us. For Jake Floyd, I'm Jeff Shade. Have a great weekend. We'll talk again next week with another edition of Show Me the Money right here on 104.1 FM KSGF, where Springfield comes to talk. 
The information provided in the preceding program is for educational purposes only and are not intended as investment advice for any individual or entity. All information contained herein believed to be from reliable sources, however, we make no representations as to its completeness or accuracy. The opinions expressed are subject to change without notice and do not constitute financial, legal, or tax advice. Please consult your financial professional before executing any financial strategy. Financial planning offered through Floyd Financial Group, LLC, an investment advisor registered in the state of Missouri.